Welcome to Nothing Confidential, the podcast. I'm Kristen Henke, your hostess with the mostest, guide from the side, and mistress of ceremonies. Together, we're about to explore and deconstruct the shame and stigma surrounding our sexuality. You heard that right. We're going deep on the topics of sex, relationships, spirituality, health, and everything else that impacts our ability to live, love, and orgasm freely. My hope is to shine a light on our shared experiences by normalizing taboo topics and empowering each of you to reclaim autonomy of your pleasure, your bodies, and your lives. You are now entering a judgment-free zone where I ask all the uncomfortable and embarrassing questions for you. Our unofficial mantra is be curious, not judgmental. So leave your inner prude at the door or strap her in tight because this is happening. beautiful listeners. It's Kristen back again. And this week is a solo sode or a solo episode. I will not have a guest joining me today. Just me, myself and I, and of course all of you. And the reason I wanted to do that is because over the weekend I had quite a transformational experience uh, via Dr. Valerie Rain, who I had on the podcast three weeks ago. Her episode was number 30, and it was titled Patriarchy Stress Disorder. If you guys have not listened to that episode, please be sure to go back and give it a listen. But we had plugged a virtual retreat she had coming up at the end of the episode called The Thriving Experience, and that took place Just this past weekend, it started Friday afternoon and was all day Saturday and all day Sunday. And the focus of it was money. And I'm going to talk a little bit about money today because while yes, we cover primarily sex and sexuality based topics of conversation, I am here to normalize all conversations that are holding women back and keeping women small and making them feel disempowered and not living their best lives. And money is a topic that a lot of people, but especially in my personal experience, a lot of women are really uncomfortable talking about and they they don't talk about it. It's not something when you're checking in with friends, even my highest vibe friends, we ask each other, you know, super evolved questions like, how is your heart? But we don't ask about each other's money. We don't ask what's going on in the finances. We don't ask about our big dreams around building wealth and what kind of legacy we want to leave for our family and what kind of homes we want to have and cars we want to drive. And, you know, that's a conversation that has historically been had by men. Men talk about that stuff and women don't, at least not, you know, the women in my circle. And I would really like to change that because money is something that makes the world go round. And yes, I believe that money is an energy, just like sexuality is an energy and it all relates to life force and creativity and quality of experience and depth of pleasure and all of these things. It's all connected. So that's why I decided that I needed to share this with you guys today. And it's going to be, as as always, when I sit down to do a solo episode, 
it's going to be extra raw and I am sharing a lot about my personal backstory. So vulnerable share time, you guys. Here we go. So I may have referenced this in other episodes, bits and pieces, but some of you may not know that I grew up fairly poor. And when I say poor, I first of all recognize that many of my listeners may have experienced childhoods or circumstances that are worse or more severe than what I'm about to describe. And so if that is you, I see you and I am honoring you and holding space for you and for your inner child and for your pain and for your experiences. But I am sharing my personal experience and that was that my family was poor. We had very little money. We lived in a trailer on church property where both of my parents worked part-time. At one point, we lived uh, on a dairy farm where my dad worked for a little while and where the rent was, uh, I can't even imagine what it was, but I know that it was something we could afford. So it was a three-bedroom house that housed uh, all of, man, all of us until we moved into a Habitat house that was five bedrooms and two bathrooms. And that was the biggest house that we ever lived in. And we got that uh, primarily because my grandfather, who had uh, a lot of physical ailments, was coming to live with us. And my father was very, very hardworking, but one income split amongst seven children. Uh, you know, it doesn't, that doesn't go very far. And so we were, we were that family that around Christmas time, you know, churches and communities would drop off you know, food and presents and, and things like that at our house. And we often had uh, the power, you know, shut off or the water shut off because someone had quote unquote forgotten to pay the bill. But the truth was that there wasn't money to pay the bill. And I remember overhearing, you know, my mom and my dad talking about how they were worried about running out of money for food. And there were definitely some moments that were pretty tight. Um, but we never, we never went hungry. We might've eaten the same thing for a week or used every part of a pumpkin you can think of to make separate meals, to keep us going for a couple of days, but we never starved. And we always had clothes and food and a roof over our head. So that being said, I was just really aware from a really early age that we had a lot less than a lot of other people. And I felt the immense stress of that. I am the oldest girl of seven kids. And so I think when you're in a dynamic like that, uh, in my case in particular, I was privy to a lot of really emotionally heavy things at a really early age, which made me appear older than I was and uh, definitely contributed to me maturing faster than a lot of other kids my age. Um, so I was aware of, you know, things going on like my, whenever money would get tight, my dad would pawn his prized uh, guitar. My father was a brilliant musician. He didn't do that for work, but that was his passion and something that he was absolutely phenomenal at and he had several really beautiful um, very expensive worth a lot especially now 
uh, guitars and whenever things would get tight he would go to the pawn shop and he would hawk them so that he could pay bills or get food for his family or whatever he had to do and I was always terrified uh, that he wouldn't be able to buy them back in time and that he was going to lose you know one of those guitars and I knew how much they meant to him and I just remember feeling really really anxious for him every time that happened and once I got to an age where I really understood what was going on it would make me incredibly sad that he was doing that and so those kind of things were stirring around for me early on and I took away uh, stories or narratives about money from being raised that way from growing up in an environment where things were scarce and for those of you who may be new to the self-development world, we talk a lot about stories, the stories we have around success, the stories we have around our sexuality and our bodies and our self-worth. And a story is simply uh, a narrative or a belief that was developed based on your environment, the environment where you spent your formative years. It might have been church or school or a cultural circumstances or your parents, but there are all of these places and people from which we form our beliefs about the world uh, based on what was mirrored to us when we were younger. And so the stories that I walked away from my childhood with about money were things like, there's never enough of it. Uh, only some people get to have it. You can work really, 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 really hard and still not have money. You can work really, really hard to earn just barely enough to get by. Money is the root of all evil. Money is something you want and you need, but it's wrong to want it. Money shouldn't matter. Rich people are selfish and or shady, skeezy. You basically don't become wealthy by being a good person, etc., etc., etc. So a lot of really negative narratives around wealth and money. And the reason this is important is because it tends to do one of two things, just like when you teach your kids that sex is wrong, they will do one of two things. They will either believe you and be terrified of it and uh, remain small shells of themselves until years and years later they realize you're wrong, but they've been so repressed for so long they don't even know what to do with themselves. Or they will rebel and they will burst forth onto the scene and they will get as much of it as they possibly can and... That also happens when you grow up with a poverty mindset. You either grow up believing that there's no point in even trying, that you're always going to be last, that you're always going to be at the bottom of the totem pole, that you might as well not make any effort because money is kind of like genetics. You're either born with good genes or you're not. And really, uh, it's really a victim mentality or you come out with this indomitable will to prove them all wrong and for that to not be true about you. And I, from a really early age, desperately didn't want that to be my story. And that was to a pretty extreme degree. I don't know where it came from, but I felt 
so much shame around my family's financial situation from su- from such a young age. I was aware of it always and I just wanted to distance myself from that as much as I could. I wanted to babysit for the families who had money. I wanted to volunteer at the horse farm because the person who owned the horse farm had money and the kids who came to ride the horses had money and I I knew that there was a life and a world that people in our tax bracket uh, weren't allowed into. We, we didn't get access. And somehow I did find myself, I put myself in the way of beauty and wealth and luxury always. I've always had a source to go to for that, even though that wasn't my home life and that wasn't my reality most days. And it's interesting, you know, to look back on that. And I'm kind of pondering it as this is coming out of my mouth. I, I still, to this day, I have these very big, wild, scary, audacious, brassy dreams of wild, world-changing wealth and legacy and impact. And I think that has been in me all along and that that was what was driving me. I just didn't have the language to talk about it. I didn't have anyone to talk to about it. And given the type of person that I am, you know, there are um, three, three trauma responses. There's fight, flight, and freeze. And my response is always to fight. So in my desire to escape the scarcity that I grew up in, uh, and that reminds me of a quote from Dr. Valerie's partner, Jeffrey Tambor, who said that scarcity comes when there's trauma of needs not being met. In my desire to escape the scarcity that I experienced as a child, I became obsessed with escaping, with running away from the life I had known and running towards something better. I just didn't want to live in the same town in the same way that my parents did and that my family did. And I've spent years uh, exploring and deconstructing and healing around this issue, the, the shame that I felt, the anxiety that I felt, everything, the embarrassment that I felt for years about my family and how poor we were and the, the worthlessness that I felt um, because of our circumstances. I had a lot of anger about it. It didn't feel fair. And I've had to come face to face with all of that and heal that within myself. And, you know, if any of my family are listening, this might be really uncomfortable. It might be uncomfortable for me to put this information out there, uh, especially if any of you haven't looked at this stuff in a while. But at the same time, this is, this is my experience of our life. And, and each and every one of my family members has a right to their own experience and each of our experiences are valid. And so this was my experience and how it made me feel. And that's all that I can speak on. And so I'm only speaking to mine, not speaking to the experiences of uh, my siblings or my parents or anyone else in my family, only to mine. So 
I, I did run away. I moved out uh, as soon as I could, um, sometime around 18-ish, right after graduating high school. And I worked and I lived in a little apartment on my own. And the first thing I did to prove that I was an adult was go to Harris Teeter. And I bought a piece of birthday cake on a Tuesday night and it was not my birthday. And I rented my best friend's wedding from the Red Box. And I went into my little basement room. It wasn't even an apartment because there was a mini fridge and I got a, uh, I think there was a toaster oven or a microwave. I got a microwave and that was all I had to deal with down there. So definitely not an apartment. It was an unfinished basement, but I put my bed and all my stuff down there and I ate my cake and I watched my movie and I felt like a damn adult y'all because there was no one telling me what to do. (laughs) And from there, I moved to Nashville, Tennessee when I was 19. And I worked really hard to make money any way that I could. I modeled and I nannied and I did odd jobs and I sold my iPod and used books and, you know, anything I could to make a couple dollars to, to have money because I didn't ever want to be without money ever again. And the thing about growing up the way that I did is that one of the reasons we were in the situation we were in is because neither one of my parents had a great education on finance as far as I could tell. They were both extremely talented artists who weren't great at the the bookkeeping portion or at charging what they were worth or saving or any of that, at least from my uh, viewpoint, that's what it seemed like. And so I didn't understand money wasn't something we spoke of in an educational way. I didn't understand credit. I didn't understand how to save. I didn't have any healthy spending habits. And so I I did the best that I could, but in my mind, it was like, as long as you make more than you spend, you should be fine. And then I discovered credit cards and those were like magic. It was like free money, except for it's not. (laughs) And so I eventually, around the time I was 20, 20, 21, I landed my first, what I would call my first real job at a medical office where I worked really hard. I started answering phones and by the time I left there, I was one of the highest paid employees there and I was making bank for a kid my age and I was not saving any of it. I was spending and spending and spending because I didn't ever want to feel lack ever again. I didn't ever want to feel scarcity. I didn't want to do without ever again. And so I didn't have very much self-control and I would buy trendy clothes and expensive wine and and meals out and take impulse trips to Vegas and you know go out with my friends every single weekend and I just spent and spent and spent trying to fill this black hole of not feeling taken care of as a child not feeling safe not feeling grounded not feeling secure as a child, uh, I just, I, I dumped money into that hole trying to make it go away. And I realized too, that I, during my 
single dating career, I attracted wealthy men who I allowed to take care of me. And they did. They gave me the life that I always dreamed of as a little girl dressed in Goodwill from head to toe and, you know, eating peanut butter sandwiches every day. I got the things that I was reading about in books and that I was imagining for myself, the world that I wanted to escape to. I traveled to beautiful cities and had really expensive dinners and was gifted beautiful jewelry and coats and I mean all kinds of things and it was wild. It was like being in a movie and I loved it and I I do think that that served me at that time. It served me at the level of consciousness I was capable of <laughs> that was available to me. And then down the road, I met the guy who would become my husband. And when I actually met him, I was the top earner. And so I would pull out my wallet, you know, and, and buy our drinks. And I would take us to expensive dinners because he didn't have a palate worth anything. And he didn't care. And I was accustomed to being treated a certain way and having certain things. And so I continued spending at a level that I definitely wasn't making, but I mean, I was still balling. I was like 23 years old and I was, I was balling. And then something I, I didn't even notice until this past weekend in reflection, something interesting started to happen. When I met Mike, I was making more money than him. And gradually over time, as we were together, I made less and less and less and less money until present day. I am a full-time stay-at-home mom and spouse. And yes, I, I work. I make the podcast. I create content. I have courses and coach and things like that. But I don't make nearly as much as I did when I was working full-time in the workforce. And while my husband and I agree that I can make $500 faster than anyone you've ever met, it's like a superpower. I can sit down, I can dream up something that costs about 500 bucks. I can write from my heart and my passion. If I'm feeling moved and I'm hundred percent in it, I can throw it out there to the world. And the next thing you know, I've sold a handful of them. Like I can do that. I can do it over and over and over. And I just, I use $500 as an example, but I have done that with more and less. And I have always made money easily in my business, but it has never amounted to anything. And I finally, I mean, before now, but this year is the first time I have really gotten serious about asking why and examining why that is. Why, despite the fact that I am more in alignment in my life than ever, I am more in integrity than ever, I am creating from a place of inspiration and purpose and love and pouring of myself into my work. So why am I not making money that feels abundant? Why is the money not adding up to flow and abundance and ease. These are the questions I was asking myself when I went into the Thrive Weekend with Dr. Valerie. And I'm sure you guys will enjoy this. 
even though I had her on the podcast, even though I've read her book, I fully believe in her work. I really like my weekends, y'all. Okay. I like to watch Queen of the South episodes and take long showers and work out a few times and paint my toes and eat snacks and leave for a couple of hours to read a book by myself. I really enjoy my weekends. My husband's around to help with the baby. And honestly, when I was sharing about the Thrive experience on the podcast, I thought to myself, you know, that sounds really great and it is about money, so I should probably do it, but I am not going to spend a whole weekend on my computer screen. Like I work all week and I don't want to do that. And I don't, I mean, call it divine guidance, intervention, whatever. Uh, it was the a couple of hours before. So the Friday morning, I got one more email from Dr. Valerie's team saying that it was coming and that it was starting. I had not signed up. I had not registered. And I was like, you know what? I, if I am serious, if I am as serious as I say I am about getting to the bottom of my flow, my financial flow, you know, I, I need to do this. It's free. It's one of the br most brilliant women I have ever experienced offering free tools and information on dealing and healing the money shit. So I need to do this. And I signed up. I signed up Friday morning for a retreat that started Friday afternoon. <laughs> and I'm glad I did. I'm really glad I did because it was really it was really beautiful and really profound. And on the one hand, it's always incredible to hear other people's stories of hardship and triumph because one, if you still have a part of you that grieves for or feels sorry for, you know, the child you who had a hard time, it, it just helps you get your head out of your ass a little bit because yes, my life was not that fun. That That's just the truth. There was some great times and there was some really not great times, but always, there's always someone who has it worse than you, who has it harder than you. And it, it does bring you back to a grounded place of gratitude for the things that you did have, which I think is really healthy and really helpful. And it also just lets you know that you're not alone here. Here I was with I think it ended up being consistently around 130 women. I think it, it the number fluctuates because, I mean, it's hard. It's hard, guys, especially when you're home. You're not at a conference where you're actually away from your house where people can't get in touch with you. So I was impressed that around 130-ish women consistently stuck with it through the whole time from Friday afternoon all the way through Sunday night. And to hear... All of the, and a lot of them are doctors and scientists and coaches and authors and really successful women who are struggling with the exact same thing that I am struggling with. It was incredibly validating. It made me feel like I wasn't crazy. And it also was really healing for me because I, uh, you know, one of the other stories that I have is that I'm not more successful because I'm quote unquote bad with money. I came from a family who didn't know what they were doing with money. And so I didn't grow up to understand money. And so now I'm bad with money. And that's something that has played out in my head uh, a lot, you know, since I've been financially independent, which I've been financially independent since 16 or 17 or so. 
So it was, it was really validating to be around that many successful women who also didn't seem to know how to get to the bottom of this, how to crack the code. And that was something I, I wrote. I have my journal with all my little notes from the weekend here in front of me. And that was something that I wrote down was that I feel like wealth and abundance is a code that only a few people know. And no matter what I do, no matter how many courses I take and how many books I read or how many podcasts I listen to. And you guys, this is something I've been aware of my whole life. So I have spent quite a bit of time and resources trying to get to the bottom of this. And I feel like no matter what I did, I couldn't crack that code. I just couldn't get through to the other side. And so the biggest moment for me came, I, I had two of them and, uh, I'll, I'll share them in the order that they came in on Saturday. I believe it was Saturday morning. Dr. Valerie shared a little snippet from her past about how she had always had money and been independent. And she felt that she had a great relationship with money until she got married and something really interesting happened where she, uh, was no longer making any money and she no longer had money. And suddenly her narrative about it changed and that sparked something in me. And I went to sit with that later during a visualization exercise that we did. And I clear as day had all of these pieces kind of click in for me. And I'm going to explain it the best that I can. It might sound a little woo-woo and a little weird. If anyone is familiar with therapy, if you've done a lot of talk therapy or uh, anything like that, you are probably familiar with inner child work because there is a lot of data to support that when a trauma occurs at a certain age, that trauma imprints in your body. And so whatever age you were when you experienced that trauma in times like current day, in times of stress, anxiety, or anything traumatizing, you revert back to the psychological state age of the child you were uh, the first time that you experienced something stressful, anxious, or traumatic. Hopefully that came out uh, as clear as I wanted it to. So essentially, I'm telling you this because I realized, I made a connection that the reason I wasn't making any money in my business, any real money in my business, is because subconsciously, I don't want to. Now, while you sit there scratching your head, adult present day Kristen, 30 year old conscious Kristen wants to be making money. I want to be contributing to my family in a meaningful way. I want to be acquiring world changing wealth. I want to be making an impact. Conscious, adult, awake, Kristen wants that. My subconscious, however, and the subconscious is what makes our decisions. My subconscious had been hijacked by nine-year-old Kristen who didn't want to ever worry about whether she was going to have enough food, whether the power bill was going to get paid or not. She didn't want to worry about that stuff, and she felt entitled to being supported financially by my husband because my childhood was hard. I felt like 
I deserved to be supported by Mike because I had it hard as a kid. And these realizations are not ever comfortable because when you say them out loud, you're like, oh my God, I'm such a butthole. But I wasn't being a butthole. It's just that I had a perceived trauma around the age of nine. And there is a little piece of me deep, deep down inside that still feels like that little girl sometimes. And my little girl was comfy and cozy and loved being taken care of. She loved not having to worry about that, not having to feel the emotional weight of responsibility when it came to bills and financial decisions. And so I deferred everything. I deferred my financial autonomy and my direct connection to my own money to my husband because that felt safe and it felt comfortable. And when I realized that, I was like, oh, holy shit. I need to contact little Kristen right now and tell her that I love her and I appreciate her and I'm sorry for the pain and the suffering that she endured when she was little, but that she's all grown up. I'm all grown up now and I love her and I've got this and I'm driving now. She is not old enough to drive (laughs) and she needs to just sit tight and I'm going to take care of her and everything is going to be okay because I am a grown ass lady. And as much as I am grateful, trust me, I can, I can hear all the ways in which I'm sure plenty of people can listen and be like, Oh, this white privileged bitch sitting in her house, taking care of her baby, working her passion projects while her husband supports her financially. I hear it. You know what? But that is my life and I'm owning my experiences and, and my life. And I'm grateful. Don't get me wrong. I'm not complaining about that. I am so grateful, but you guys, I was not put on this earth to be a housewife, to be a kept housewife. I have always dreamt of, I've, I've seen myself becoming a matriarch, a powerful woman who leads and guides her family, who is financially responsible for her family. I'm going to put this out there for you guys. I have big goals to bust my husband out of corporate America. I want to make so much money that my husband doesn't have to go to work unless he wants to. I want to make so much money that my husband gets the opportunity that he has given me to pursue his own passion and his own purpose, figure out what those are and follow them. Sometimes that requires a little financial backing. And I'm so grateful that I've had this opportunity to do that because of the gift of financial security that my husband has given me. And I want to pay that back. I want to offer that to him one day. And so I, I've always seen myself being financially independent, not in the, like, I don't need a man sense, but in the, I have a man, but I don't, I have a man because I want a man, not because I need him to take care of me. I take care of me and I take care of my family. That has mattered. That's always mattered to me. And I, I will have that. I will absolutely have that. So that was one really big realization. And then the second one, it came right on the, on the tail end. It came right along those same lines. And that was that, well, let me back up a little bit. Dr. Valerie Rain does a lot of work around intergenerational trauma and talking about our lineage. So just like in my work in sexuality, we visit the 
sexual trauma. We have to heal the sexual trauma of our mothers and our grandmothers and our great grandmothers as well, because that stuff is genetically passed down to us. So women who are showing markers of trauma, but don't remember ever experiencing any, sometimes it's repressed things that they haven't remembered, but a lot of times it's generational trauma that they didn't directly experience but that has been passed down to them genetically and they are reacting to that. And it's the same with money. It's the exact same with money and our relationship to money. And my, the lineage of women in my family, their narrative goes something like men have always taken care of us. We have always belonged to someone. We have not belonged to ourselves. We have belonged to men And if we were poor or unhappy with our life, we chose the wrong man or we were a victim and we were chosen and we didn't get to do the choosing. And so again, it's my lineage is very disempowered. There is no financial autonomy. And I can recall many times when female relatives of mine, whether it was my grandmother, my mother, aunties, et cetera, would sit around saying things like, oh, you know, I'm just waiting for my ship to come in. And over the weekend, it just, I felt such deep grief for those women because while they're waiting for their ship to come in, they didn't know that all of that time they could have been building their own ship. They could have been building the ship themselves. And it's not their fault. It's not their fault that they don't know that. And I want to take this moment to just say that for my parents and for my family members, for my ancestors, I'm not blaming any of them. I am not blaming any of them. They did the very best they could with what they knew and what they had and what they believed was possible. And There's a lot of hardship in my family's history that brought each of them to the point they were at when I came into the picture, when my brothers and sisters came into the picture. And so I am not disparaging them. I am not speaking ill of them. I am simply sharing um, my reality as I experienced it and interpreted it. And I have a lot of love for them and a lot of compassion for them. And there's, there's no blaming. There's no blaming here. But at the same time, this, just like sexual liberation, just like spiritual authenticity, just like parenting, I mean, this is something so important that we can't afford to allow beliefs that other people gave to us on these subjects, we can't allow that to determine the outcome of our story. Because maybe you grew up poor and hopeless with a family who didn't know jack shit about money, who told you that you would never amount to anything because no one in in your family has ever amounted to anything. That doesn't have to be true for you. That doesn't have to be true for you. We get to break the cycle. We get to decide what our legacy is going to be. We get to decide what our family's legacy is going to be. And isn't that healing? Because I can tell you that my parents didn't want their legacy to be poverty and scarcity. 
And so if I am the one who takes, takes it on to end that cycle and to truly break through, I am their legacy. I am an extension of them going places they were never able to go. And what a blessing and what an honor that is. And this matters to me, you guys, not just because I have always believed that there was more out there and that I should have it and that I get to have it. Not only do I firmly believe that, I want so much more for my daughter. I don't want her to have these hangups. I don't want her to see money as something that is limited and scarce and restrictive and scary and anxiety producing. I want her to see and value money as the transformative energy that it can be when it is in the hands of the right people with the right information and the right tools and the right motives. I believe that I'm raising a world changer and I want to leave her a shit ton of money to change the world with. And you know what? Also, (laughs) we don't have to apologize for wanting money. There is nothing inherently wrong or evil or sinful or negative or shitty about wanting money just for wealth's sake. And there's plenty of you who might disagree with me, and that's okay. I invite your disagreements. Uh, If you're going to let me know about the disagreement, keep it respectful because I don't put up with any nonsense. But it's okay if that's triggering for you. There was a time when I thought that I had some kind of moral high ground as long as I didn't care about money. But the problem is somewhere out there, someone is always caring about money, and they may or may not be as pure of heart as you are. And so what kind of world are we going to live in if only the driven, dedicated, shitty people get money? (laughs) Like what happens then? It's our responsibility. It is the responsibility of light workers and world changers and movers and shakers to make money. We have to make money to offset all of the crazy assholes out there who are making money hand over fist. Am I right? I think I'm right about this, (laughs) but also women, I just, I want you to hear me on this. There is nothing wrong with desiring a beautiful, luxurious, spacious, abundant life and sunny days in white minimalist rooms clad in silk kimonos. Like there is nothing wrong with wanting that. Uh, in fact, I did a an exercise over the weekend as well where we talked about what a day of thriving looks like, feels like. And so I just wrote a bunch of things on a piece of paper. I said that a day of thriving feels abundant, juicy, luxurious, spacious, light-filled, tuned in, turned on, aligned, creative, expansive, yummy, impactful, beautiful, Silk kimono, because I'm really serious about silk kimonos. Orgasmic, energizing, innovative, slow, luscious, conscious, nourishing, playful, whimsical, voluptuous, ooey-gooey, connected, fulfilling, passionate, pleasurable, meaningful, ease-filled, vibrant, generous, delicious, magical, divine. That 
is what a day of thriving sounds like to me. And in this world, on this planet, you need money to make a day like that happen. So I'm going to wrap this up here. That's a lot of Kristen for you. It's a lot of high-level ideas and therapy terms and self-development world jargon and all the things. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you uh, to sit with all of this because I'm still sitting with it. But I believe that the life that I dream of is possible, even though going into last weekend, another story that I recognized was this fear around whether this was all possible or not. There was a fear because no one else in my family and not many people that I know personally have ever achieved the level of success that I am dreaming of. And all kinds of doubts and shit come up around that. The inner mean girls like, well, if, if no one you know, and you know lots of smart people, if they haven't figured this out, then what makes you think that you're going to figure this out? And if your family, if no one in your family has figured this out, what makes you think you're going to be the one to finally break through and figure this out? Um... And that's, you know, that's the shitty inner voice that wants to keep us fucking small. It wants to keep us from achieving everything that we desire, everything that we long for, everything that we dream that we can have. And something that Dr. Valerie encouraged us to say uh, all week long, we would go into breakout rooms to, to talk and get micro about the macro And she said, you know, don't coach anybody, don't give any feedback just when they, after they're done sharing, after they're done sharing their wildest dreams, all you do is you affirm them by saying, and you get to have it or something even better. And so friends, I'm going to leave you with that. Whatever you are dreaming of, whatever the biggest, scariest, most abundant, most beautiful, sick thing you can think of is you get to have it or something so much better. Hey, thank you so much for hanging in there and listening with an open and curious heart. I hope this conversation has inspired, educated, and entertained you, or at the very least, shaken things up in a productive way. Ann Voskamp says that shame dies when stories are told in safe places. So please share, rate, and review. Sending you love and dark chocolate. Talk soon.